If you have them to mark the 16th and final chapter, we have been 15 weeks in this study called Jesus 101, and today we're going to complete what Mark calls his gospel together in perhaps the best news that you're going to hear today. I had the opportunity to go on vacation last summer uh, to the Twin Cities, and once the ice melted, we had a wonderful time. And, uh, and my brother and sister-in-law took us to a water park that was just fantastic. And when we got to the water park, the, the whole place was dominated by the most massive set of water slides that you've ever seen. Now, I don't know if you've picked up on this at other times, but I am pretty risk-averse, so those water slides were not for me. Uh, I have irrational fears sometimes. I wasn't singing the words of the second song we did today. I looked at that water slide and thought, not for me, no, no, I don't like heights, that's number one. Number two, I have the irrational fear of sliding over the edge of a water slide and falling to my death on the concrete below. It's just, it's there, I don't know why. And, and third, I've always had this fear that I'm going to crack my head at the bottom of the water slide, get a concussion and drown. So uh, now that you know that I have a strong case of neurosis, uh, I, I decided that was not for me, but as the, as the day went on, I kept watching little kids go on that water slide, and, and my brother and sister-in-law, they wouldn't leave it there, so they started saying, come on, Matt, go up on that water slide. I'm like, no, no, not for me, not for me. Like, come, on, come on, you know, and then they appealed to my manhood and uh, pretty much told me that, that I was being something, and... Uh, so I went up to that water slide, and I climbed up to the top, and I saw the 10-year-olds going down, and thought, God bless them. And I got to the bottom of that water slide after going down, and I got into the water, and I came back up, and you know what I did? No, I didn't thank the Lord. I immediately turned and went up that water slide again. It was for me. <laughs> Here, years of, of, of enjoyment that I could have been enjoying in water slides had been ruined because I just wouldn't accept that this could be for me. But, but I, I went that day. In fact, I stopped parenting right in that moment. Gina, it was four on one for Gina. We have five now. It was four on one the rest of the time. I, I had the water slide. In fact, when we were ready to go and everybody got packed up, I'm like, hey, Gina, one more time. Just stay there. Isn't that funny that sometimes we can look at something and go, I don't know that's for me, but it is exactly for us. Well, as we complete the Gospel of Mark today, we're going to see two great big things happen in the span of eight short verses. One, Mark is going to complete the gospel for us. Remember way back in chapter 1, way back in September, we talked about Mark saying that this is a gospel. This is the good news about Jesus Christ. And we've got to complete the good news. We need every bit of it. And then second, second we find, from, find that Mark is going to tell us something that he hasn't told us yet. He's going to tell us who the good news is for. Okay? We haven't answered that question yet. Mark has not just come out and told his readers exactly why he's written, but we're going to see in these eight verses exactly who the good news is for. Are you in chapter 16 of Mark? Let's read the first eight verses. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint the body of Jesus. Remember last week we saw Jesus had died a death to ransom us from our sin and our death. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. 
See the place where they laid him. Now go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went and they fled from the tomb for fear and trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Thus endeth the gospel. Now you say, Pastor Matt, I have more in my Bible. There's something in brackets there that, that goes on from there, but I don't remember anything else being in brackets in my Bible. What's that all about? Well, to, to make it very simple, as best we can surmise, the book of Mark, what Mark the Apostle, the associate of Peter, wrote, ends in verse 8. Now, why, why do we believe that? Well, the very earliest copies of the Bible we have, the very earliest ones, stop in verse 8. They, they don't go any further. And so when, you're, when the, 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 the people who translate the Bible are looking to give us the most accurate reflection of what was first written of the Bible, they want to go with what's oldest. And in this case, what's oldest, these verses aren't here. In fact, the other old copies that are quite as old, they don't agree on what the ending of Mark should be. And finally, sort of to, to give you the reason why we end in verse 8 is because the words that are used from verse 9 forward don't really look like they're Mark. He uses a lot of vocabulary that's not in the rest of the book, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. You say, so why is that bracketed stuff in my Bible? Well, it is in so many early manuscripts, not the oldest, but early, just in case, on the off chance that this could be the Apostle Mark, they have included it in your Bible. But for all intents and purposes, for life and study, we should be careful and probably end in verse 8. Now you say, that seems like a pretty abrupt ending. But I want to tell you, in Mark's economy, it's not abrupt. Mark has completed the gospel. We don't need any of the sightings of Jesus that takes place in the other gospels. Mark has completed the job. He's told us what the gospel is and who the gospel is for. The book is complete. And this entire account is very matter-of-fact anyways. On a certain day, Sunday morning after the Passover... Certain women, Mary, Mary, Salome, went to a tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea in order to anoint the body of Jesus. They couldn't do it on Saturday. That was the Sabbath, and that would have been work. They weren't allowed to do it on Saturday, so they had to wait. And it shows the great level of devotion because Jesus had been dead for over 40 hours. You don't want to go anointing a dead body that's been laying there in the hot sun of Jerusalem for 40 hours, but they go anyways. They want to know if anybody's going to roll away the stone, and behold, they enter that area, and the stone's been rolled away. A creepy dude in white is sitting inside of the tomb. We'll get back to that later. And he says that Jesus is risen. Very matter-of-fact account. Doesn't seem very mythological. It's very straightforward. Jesus is risen. Go to Galilee. You'll see him there. And that's the account. But, but, but three things are of note. One, let's not bury the lead. Jesus is risen. That's a miraculous occurrence. That's something that they have no context for. People don't rise of their own volition from the dead. If you've seen that, we're going to have to talk afterwards, all right? That doesn't happen much in the history of the world, if at all. This is new. This is something they don't have a lot of context for. Number two, it's interesting, the message that the angel, and I'm just going to go ahead and say that it's an angel. Mark just says, dude in white. Uh, but but, but we're, going to, we're going to say an angel. The angel looks at her, them and goes, Jesus is risen. Go tell the disciples and Peter that he's risen. Now, that's interesting. Because the last time we saw the disciples and Peter, the disciples were abandoning Jesus to death. Jesus was being arrested, and they fled. Really great friends, right? Oh, he's being arrested. We're out. That's what they did to him. And, of course, Peter denounces him altogether. I don't know Jesus. Never seen Jesus. Never talked to Jesus. Yes, don't let my accent from Galilee fool you. It's not, not, I'm not with him. Peter's abandoned him and denounced him, except that the angel says, go tell these guys that 
Jesus is risen. And third, they're really scared. Now, because we're in church and we sing songs like, praise the name of the Lord, we sing songs like that, and we've seen the resurrection, we, we have a context for resurrection, we're assuming that these women should have been like, yeah, he did it. But once again, they have absolutely no context, and there's more to the story that would leave them very scared. Imagine for just a moment, you went to the grave of one of your loved ones to put some flowers on the grave. And when you got there, the grave was opened. Okay? And then you walk over to the open grave, and somebody's sitting in it, wearing white. And, and, and the, 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 the vault and the casket is gone. They look at you and says. Your relative has been abducted by aliens. You would run and call the police immediately. Like, I mean, these, these ladies uh, obviously go and do what any one of us would do with confronted with the same set of information. Now, why did I say abducted by aliens? Well, because they don't have context for resurrection. We have 2,000 years of context for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But, but they don't have any. They're terrified, and they can't call the police because the police just killed Jesus. That's why they didn't tell anybody. Who are they going to tell? Uh, Sadducees, uh, I know you killed Jesus. The body's gone. Go get the body snatchers. What, what are they going to do? There's nothing that they can do. They fear. They're amazed. They're in fear. They're perplexed, and they get out of there because who knows what that dude in white's all about. I'd be scared too. But we have context for this resurrection because we're reading the book of Mark. We're not there in the moment seeing this. In fact, in Mark 8, 31, Jesus says, I will die and I will rise. In Mark 9, 9, he says, after I rise. In Mark 9, 21, he says, I will rise. In Mark 10, 34, he says, I will rise. In Mark 14, 28, he says, after I've risen. Jesus is trying to be, prep, trying to be, be prepping people for this, but it's just not working. Because once again, they had seen him die. And now he is gone, he is risen. But Jesus has been telling us the central message of the gospel the entire time, the two-part message of the gospel. The two-part message of the gospel is that I will die a ransoming death and I will be resurrected. It's a two-part message. It completes the good news. If Jesus dies a death of ransom, that's exactly what he calls it, for human beings to take them out of their binding agreement with sin and death and bring them into, in his words, a covenant a new binding agreement with God that whereby death is not the boss. If Jesus dies that ransoming death, resurrection must follow. You say, why must resurrection follow? Well, let's dive into that for just a minute. Why did Jesus need to rise? And why does the gospel give us both the death and resurrection of Jesus? And to understand that, we need to turn back a few pages in our Bible to Mark chapter 12. You see, Jesus' resurrection is not the only teaching, if you will, on resurrection in the, in the book of Mark. In fact, the most sharp dispute that Jesus gets in with any religious people in the entire book is over the matter of resurrection. And it happens in Mark chapter 12, verse 18. The Sadducees come to Jesus. Let's read verse 12, 18 and see if we can understand what's going on here. The Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. Let's just stop right there for just a minute. Who were the Sadducees? The Sadducees were not the Pharisees. You've seen the Pharisees and the scribes and the rest of the book of Mark. The Sadducees were the priestly class. They were the ones that hung out around the temple. And the Sadducees didn't believe in the afterlife. They read the Old Testament and they said, well, I guess the whole point of life is to try to follow the law, and when that's over, we're just done. When you're dead, you're dead. Thus they were sad, you see, because they had no hope. 
It's the worst joke ever, I know. It's a seminary joke. They say it in every seminary class. I had to say it for you. It's, it's obligatory. Anyhow, the Sadducees didn't believe in life after death. And it's crazy when if you read the Old Testament from, from Genesis to Malachi, you know there's something more coming. And in the ancient world, especially in ancient Israel, there was this debate going on between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. On this point, Jesus and the Pharisees agreed. God is not going to leave you to soul annihilation. You, you don't just cease to exist when life is over. God has something more for you. In, in fact, from the time that the, that the first humans sin and are, are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, you expect that God is going to do something to fix their problem with sin and death. And God is going to do something to ransom them from that. Jesus so sharply rebukes them, and then in verse 24, he just goes after him. He says, is this not the reason that you're wrong? I mean, people do not like being told they're wrong. Jesus just comes out, and he says it multiple times throughout this passage. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God, for when they rise from the dead, and he goes on to explain the rest of the story about what the Sadducees had been doing. See, the Sadducees have brought to Jesus a question of, of just pure silliness about the resurrection, and Jesus took it as a moment to say, oh, there will be a resurrection. You guys are dead wrong. And then he doubles down and goes, you don't know the scriptures. You read the scriptures and you think that God is just going to leave us to death. He's like, that is crazy talk. That is absolutely ridiculous. If you read the Old Testament, God is not just going to leave you there. One of my favorite passages on resurrection from the Old Testament comes from the book of Job. Job says, after my flesh, my body has been destroyed, then I will stand upon the earth and I will see God with my own eyes. What? Job, Job just flat out says it. One of the oldest books in the Old Testament, Job just says, after I'm dead, I'm going to stand on the earth and see God with my own eyes. How does that happen? Because God has a plan for resurrection. Now, what is resurrection? Let's just go back to the very basic concept. Resurrection is the idea that God's not just going to save your spirit. We have this concept that, and, and, and I know why we have this concept, it's due to Looney Tunes, the great theological premise from Looney Tunes, that when Yosemite Sam eventually gets blown up by Bugs Bunny, what happens? His spirit is given a harp and a cloud and a set of wings for him to play for all eternity. And we think that this is what God's going to do to us. He's going he's to just take care of our spirit and, and send us off into the ether and we're going to become these spiritual winged beings. But that's not the story of Scripture. The story of Scripture is not that God is just going to ransom your spirit from death. God's going to save all of you, every bit of your body. And that's why Jesus says, you don't know the Scriptures, nor do you know the power of God. God's just not going to save your spirit. He's going to save this. Because this is part of what makes you human. I'm, I'm, I'm hitting myself in the chest. This flesh and blood. This is part of what makes you human. And this has borne the effects of sin and death from the time that you were born. You decay. If you don't believe it, just look at your neighbor. You will decay. Your body will not last forever. And, and, and something in us goes, it ought not be this way. Wouldn't it be nice to be in flesh, to be fully human, not just spirit, but flesh as well, and enjoy life as we were meant to, not marred by sin and not marred by death? That is resurrection. That God is not just going to save your soul, he's going to save all of you. 
This is what Jesus is arguing for. He says, you don't know the power of God, nor do you know the scriptures. God's not just going to save your inner person. He is going to give you something new in flesh that does not decay. He's going to make you the human that you were always meant to be. You're going to get to experience a new heaven and a new earth and a body that does not decay. You interested? That's what Jesus is saying. That's resurrection. The gospel is only complete. The gospel is only complete when God saves every part of us. Every part of us. If Jesus is going to ransom and he truly is as powerful as he claims to be, I need him to save all of me. I don't want to be a spirit on a cloud. That sounds terrible. That doesn't sound good at all. I want to remain human. And that's what Jesus says. You are going to remain human, but you are going to be a human that is ransomed from sin and death and given a new body. God is not a cut-rate insurance company. Like, imagine if you went out and you wrecked your $30,000 car, and that's what it's worth on Kelly Blue Book, even after you drive it off the lot, and then the insurance company goes, yeah, we're going to give you uh, uh, 12500 on that. You'd go nuts. You'd lose it. My car is worth so much more. How dare you only give me 12.5 on what's worth 30? God's not just going to give you 12.5 on you. God wants to redeem all of you. Body, soul, spirit, whatever you want to call it. He wants to make you completely new. That is resurrection. He said, that would be nice. I'd love to be in a body that doesn't decay. I would love for that to be the plan for me. Here I thought my entire life that if I died and I did enough good things, I, I would end up in heaven as a spirit and I'd be floating around and things like that and it'd be smoky. And God says, no, I'm going to give you through the death of my son and his ransom a body that is not overcome by sin and death. He said, that'd be nice, but where's the proof? The proof is in the empty tomb. The proof is in, he is risen. You say, I don't understand, how could that be? How could Jesus rise from the dead? Well, this is why it's good to, to think back to last week to what we talked about. We said that the reason that we die is because we are in a binding agreement with sin and death. Remember this? That's the reason that we die. But what if somebody is killed who wasn't? What if there was somebody who died who fully obeyed God, fully trusted God, never asked what was on the other side of the coin, never embraced sin. What happens if that person dies? They can't stay dead. See, that's who Jesus was. The story of Mark is that the Son of God came to earth, and over and over and over again, he trusted his Father, even to the point of death. He, he obeyed his father even to the point of death. He never grabbed hold of sin and death. He was never shackled by it. And that's why when they took his life, he couldn't stay dead. You say, Pastor Matt, that's great. I, I suppose that makes theological sense to me. Thank you very much for telling me why Christ is risen. Why would I rise? Because you are no longer in a binding agreement with sin and death. Through the blood of Christ on the cross, through the new covenant in his blood, through the thing that we celebrate every, every month here in church, through the, the body and blood of Christ, you are no longer in a binding agreement with sin and death. You will rise. You will be given a resurrection body. That is God's plan for you. And the hope of that is not in your own 
power. The hope of that is not in your own goodness. The hope of that is not in something that you can muster. It's everything having to do with who Jesus is and what he did. Peter put it this way in, in, in 1, Peter, or 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has brought us in to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Blessed be the God of Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has caused us to come into a new birth through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, if Jesus rises and he's ransomed you, you will rise also. That completes the gospel. The gospel is that God doesn't just want to save part of you. God wants to save all of you. So the only question is, who is it for? Who was Mark writing this gospel to? Who who was Mark trying to, 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 to get a hold of when he said, Jesus died, Jesus is risen, thus endeth the good news? Well, it's very clear. Go tell the disciples and Peter. That's who the gospel's for. The disciples and Peter. Say, not for me? Well, hold on just a minute. Where did we leave the disciples and Peter? We left the disciples and Peter abandoning Jesus. We left the disciples and Peter renouncing Jesus. That's who the gospel's for. You see, if, if you read this story of Jesus 101 that we've read these last 15 weeks, there, there are the secondary characters the entire time, and they're these disciples. These disciples who are often so confused. They're with Jesus, but they just don't quite understand all of who he is. They lack faith. No matter how many miracles he does, they just, oh, I don't know, Jesus. And they've rejected him. They've denounced him. They've abandoned him. They're confused by him. That's who the gospel's for. See, that's why Peter says, who in his great mercy, that's what God did through the resurrection of Jesus. In great mercy, that angel is telling those women, go tell the very ones who feel like the gospel's not going to be for them that the gospel is for Go tell the ones who are confused by God. Go tell the ones who, who, who don't understand God. Go tell the ones who lack some faith. Go tell the ones who, who have abandoned God. Go tell the ones who have ignored God. Go tell the ones who have yelled at God. Go tell the ones who have failed while claiming to work for God. Go tell those people Jesus is risen. And that is the beauty of Mark ending his gospel right here. That the gospel is for the failed ones. The gospel is for those who didn't have it all together. The gospel is for those who failed God while trying to work for him. The gospel are the ones, is for the ones who don't have enough faith all the time. When I read the story of Jesus, I think, what a marvelous Savior. But when I read the story of the disciples who walked alongside him, I see myself. 
someone who can be confused by it all, someone who can lack faith, someone who at times can fail while claiming to serve God, somebody who at times ignores God, somebody who at times just doesn't have it together for God. I see myself and I realize that the gospel is for even me. For even me. That's the counter story to Jesus 101. Humans 101. Confused, frail, afraid, lacking faith, lacking trust, lacking discipline, sinning, ignoring God, being angry at him, rebuking him for his actions. That happened in Mark 2. That's humans 101. If the gospel is even for the disciples and Peter, the gospel is for you. That angel might as well have looked at those women and said, go tell your name. Jesus is risen. Go tell Otto, Jesus is risen. Go tell Don, Jesus is risen. Go tell Sherry, Jesus is risen. Go tell Gloria, Jesus is risen. The gospel is for them. The gospel is for people who can't ransom themselves from their sin and death. The gospel is for people who can't get their mind always wrapped around who God is. The gospel is for people who know that they've failed God, but know that in his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's who the gospel is for. So if you feel confused today by God, the gospel is for you. If you feel like you failed God, the gospel is for you. If you feel like you don't understand why God lets certain things happen, the gospel is for you. If you feel like you can never live up, the gospel is for you. If you feel like, like you lack faith, the gospel is for you. It's for you. If it's for those failures that started the church of Jesus Christ named the disciples, it's for you. And it also shows that when the gospel is embraced, he can change you forever. Because if it wasn't for those confused, abandoning, faithless men, none of us would be here today in a church knowing Jesus. The gospel is for you, and it will change you, and it will give you a living hope forever. Let's pray. of this earth grow dim. I need a God who overcomes my failings, my fears, my doubts, my faithlessness, my sin. I need a God who has good news for that type of person. And when I see that the gospel was for Peter and those failed disciples, I recognize that it's for me for me, I know that it can be for every person who's within the hearing of these words. If you're here today and you have journeyed with us, in, even in part through the book of Mark, learning about this Jesus who is so good, so strong, 
so loving, so sacrificial. That you say, Pastor Matt, I, I can't or have not yet embraced the good news for me. That God can rescue me from what has always seemed most natural but not been God's best for me. And I have not yet believed that God wants to save all of me. But I see it today. I see that even in my doubts and my fears, my worries, my faithlessness, that God loves me. He doesn't want me to stay there, but he loves me. He cares about me. And even though I don't understand the scriptures, even though I don't get it all, I need the good news in my life. That God can change my life, give me a new birth into a living hope. He can save me. I don't want my life to be defined by me. I am ready for my life to be defined by the God who created me. Whether you're faithless, confused, or otherwise today, the gospel is for you. And if you're in this place and you know today is the day you need to turn your life over to this Jesus who you've seen, I invite you right now to just lift a hand towards heaven and say, God, that's me. I need to turn my life over to you today. I've waited too long. You have been before me and I have seen you. And I've looked at you and thought, not for me. But I see today that it is for me. If that's you today, why don't you make the commitment to follow him right now? Just raise a hand towards heaven and say, God, I'm in. Save me. Ransom me. Give me a new hope in Jesus. Father God, I pray for your people today. We are all your people. There's only one distinction. Those who have chosen to follow you and those who have not yet chosen to follow you. God, I pray that you would cause hearts lives, even our bodies, to begin to follow you with everything. Because, Lord, you want to rescue everything about us. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand and join us in our benediction song today?